Before we begin this sermon series on one of the more obscure passages or books in the Bible on Leviticus, we spent a few weeks together in probably what is the most well-known story in all of Scripture, what's known as the parable of the prodigal son, or it's the story about a father and his two sons that were both lost and rebels in different ways. And I want to ask you, do you remember what was at the center of that parable? the event that's at the center of that parable. It's a banquet. It's a feast. The fattened calf has been killed, and the villagers and the two rebellious sons are invited in to the father's banquet table. And this is a central theme throughout the biblical word. In fact, this is the way that Scripture both begins and ends. The first Human beings are in the Garden of Eden, walking in the presence of God. He's walking in their midst, and they are blessed by God's abundant provision, a feast in the Garden that they could eat from every tree in the Garden, except for one, and we know how that story plays out. But nonetheless, they're placed there in the middle of essentially a banquet table in the Garden. And then we go to the end of Scripture. We are, as Christians, a people of hope, and we're awaiting the return of our King, Jesus, to come back and fix everything that's broken. Our hope is not in our own efforts, it's in Him. And when He comes back, in Revelation 19, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a great banquet, a great feast, where the people of God who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who've been cleansed by His cleansing blood, as we've looked at in these sacrifices in Leviticus, are now invited to the table to to finally be unioned with their Lord, to see Him face to face. And then later in chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, we read about the the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city that now uh, floods into the whole of God's created order that's been renewed by His grace. And in that city, there is a river of life flowing through the city. And there is the tree of life back to Eden, which is bearing 12 kinds of fruit that are for the healing of the nations, and its fruit is born every month. It is a place of abundance and feasting, and it says, and they will see his face. will be in the presence of the living God. This feasting and this abundance is a continual a way that the scriptures present the reality of life in the presence of God. Consider Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Or consider David in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You remember what he says next? My cup overflows. Even in the midst of the broken and sinful world in which we find ourselves, even in the midst of just barely making it by in this last week, perhaps that's the way some of you feel this morning, the reality is from a biblical perspective that life in the presence of God, even in the brokenness, is a life of abundance and of feasting at his table and in his presence. This series on Leviticus is all about the fact that God wants to dwell with his people. This is an astonishing reality about the God of the universe, that he wants to dwell with you and with me and allow us to feast at his banquet table. I wonder, is this your view of God as you come in here this morning? Do you know that God longs to give you abundant life 
and to satisfy you with the riches of his presence, which is ultimately what we are longing for, because that's who God is as we understand him in the biblical word. That is what he longs to give us. And so I want to say, can we just once and for all put to death the common belief that God is boring or restrictive or some kind of killjoy on our lives? Too often, those things are portrayed in in the kind of pop culture and in the entertainment industry, and it's just a lie. It's a lie. The biblical witness about God is that God is a God of abundant life who longs to bless his people with abundant life and grace. We're diving into Leviticus chapter 3. If you want to open up in your Bibles there with me, you're welcome to do so. And what we're going to find here is the astonishing fact that the divine host, who is God himself, showing divine hospitality to his people in a covenant renewal meal is, in fact, the telos or the end or the goal of the divinely revealed way of worship that God revealed to Moses from the center of the tabernacle long ago, which we now know as the book of Leviticus. Remember, these offerings, there are five offerings in Leviticus 1 through 7. They reveal a journey into the presence of God, a kind of cultic journey through the sacrificial system in worship. We started two weeks ago in this journey with the purification and reparation offerings. Sin must be atoned for, expiated. And then we moved last week to the ascension offering. We saw that the pathway into God's presence is modeled by the journey of the sacrificial animal that is first consecrated to the Lord, then transformed from an animal into smoke, and then ascends into the very presence of the living God as a pleasing aroma. And just to say, we, as we live the cross-shaped life of love in obedience to Jesus, as those who are vanquished by the love of Jesus Christ, we are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Isn't that beautiful? We are the pleasing aroma as we hand our lives over to the Lord Jesus, to God. There are depths to plumb there, but that's for another time. So we enter into the presence of God through the ascension offering and then the grain or tribute offering in chapter 2, which we're not going to focus on in this series, follows the ascension offering, often paired with the ascension offering. Why? Because you don't enter into the presence of a divine king empty-handed. You come bringing gifts, gifts that are fitting of a king, much like we try not to show up at somebody's house without a token of our gratitude and our appreciation for their hospitality, usually in the form of a bouquet of of flowers or some chocolates or something like that. We understand that idea that we are to enter into God's presence with gifts. It's even part of the reason that historically we have included, we, I say in the biggest sense, the church for 2,000 years has included an offering in the context of worship. We bring our gifts of value to the Lord himself. But we are invited into his presence, and this is important, this is where we'll focus today, not just to bring tribute, but to fellowship, to commune with the very presence of the living God through a shared meal together. The fellowship or peace offering of chapter 3 is all about this. And again, this is the point or the culmination or the goal of this way of worship that God reveals to Moses in the book of Leviticus. God longs to dwell with his people, and in dwelling with his people, God longs to fellowship with us 
through a shared meal together. He doesn't just want to be admired or obeyed, though certainly God longs in that way for us to respond to his grace and power in that way. He longs for us to fellowship with him. Quick word on terminology. There's a lack of clarity over to how to, how to translate the, the Hebrew word from which the ESV takes the peace offering. It's derived from the, the Hebrew root um, that is the same root from which we get the most well-known Hebrew word, which is shalom, which means peace. But there are other words that are derived from that same root, and we're really uncertain uh, as to exactly how to translate this term. And so the ESV uses peace offering, the NIV uses fellowship offering, and I'm gonna go with the NIV in part because the, the idea of fellowship is really the purpose of this offering. It is about fellowship. And of course, it is also a fellowship that's had in peace, but there's a sense in which the fellowship is really what the offering is pointing us toward. So the outline in chapter three is pretty straightforward. There are instructions. You probably haven't heard more butchering instructions in your life from the pulpit here, uh, but there are instructions given for how to do this fellowship offering first with an animal from the herd and then with animals from the flock, first for the sheep and then for the goat. And then there's a final universal command in verse 17, a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The sacrifices here in chapter three are similar to those that we've already seen. They follow the presentation rite, the hand leaning rite, the slaughtering rite, the blood manipulation rite, the then the burning rite, then the communion rite, which is going to be our focus through this offering, and then uh, the blessing that comes as a result of all of this. So what we wanna do, two parts to this in terms of our, our foray in. Um, the first is just to look at the fact that the fellowship offering is a shared meal. And I wanna make that case from the biblical text. Then second, we'll look at what the purpose of that meal is, and then we'll conclude with some thinking about our lives today. So first, this is a shared meal. Well, last week, as we focused on the Ascension offering, we, we, we focused on the fact that the unique thing about the Ascension offering is it's the only one of the five that is wholly consumed or transformed on the altar. Well, this week, the unique feature of the fellowship offering which is unlike any of the other offerings that God revealed, is that it is the one offering that the people of Israel, the lay people of Israel, would actually eat and consume alongside the priests as well. Other offerings were given as portions to the priests and their families to support them in their work of maintaining the worship of the people of God. They did not have the same kind of inheritance as the other tribes. But this offering is unique in that the commoner, the non-priestly of Israel, were invited to eat of this meal. Now, this isn't actually explicitly stated in Leviticus 3. It is stated, though, explicitly in Leviticus 7. And something we need to keep in mind when we read these first chapters of Leviticus is they are not meant to be exhaustive. They were meant to be a manual for how to perform these offerings for both the lay people and the priests. And often they assume things that the original readers no doubt would have understood. They would have understood what was gonna be said later in chapter seven. But let me explain just from a, a few hints in this text as to um, how this is understood as a, a shared meal. First of all, the prohibition in verse 17 that I've already read about not eating fat or blood, which I think all of us are thankful for that prohibition at one level, um, that prohibition would not have been included were this offering not about 
eating and sharing in a meal. In other words, if the people weren't to eat anything, there would have been no reason for the prohibition. So that's one clue and one hint. Again, in chapter 7, we learn explicitly that the worshiper does eat this offering and, and that portions of it are also given to the priests. That would be the breast and the right thigh. And then obviously the portions that are laid out here that are dedicated solely to the Lord, the fat and around the entrails, the kidneys, and the liver. So what we get is a picture of three different entities, the Lord, the priests, and the worshiper, sharing in this sacrifice together, sharing in this meal. Another hint in our text on this is actually with the phrase, the food offering. So at verse 6, um, which is on the wood, on the fire, it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Or again in verse 11, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. I'm, I'm going to get a little bit technical, but it's for those of you who've been paying close attention. Um, in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2 about the ascension offering and then the tribute or grain offering, the same expression of the food offering is used in those two chapters. However, and when we were looking at the ascension offering, we talked about this, the better translation there, and it's a footnote in the ESV, is an offering by fire. An offering by fire. And that's what we read in chapters 1 and chapter 2. When we get to the phrase of food offering in chapter 3, we don't see it in the English, but it's different in the Hebrew. And this is an important difference because in the Hebrew, the word food is actually there, whereas it's not in chapters 1 and 2. And all I'm suggesting is that little insight does show us that the, the context of the fellowship offering is the context of a meal that the word food is used because it's about sharing in a meal, and that's unique in this offering. Now, lest we think that the people of Israel thought that they were feeding God, which many of the uh, cultures in the ancient Near Eastern world did understand because sacrifice is not unique to Israel. God was using a form that was understood by the people of the day and infusing that form with amazing, as we've seen, incredible truth. Um, but God, the, <clears throat> the, uh, God is not being fed by us. So Psalm 50, some of you will know this psalm, makes that clear. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do we eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And of course, the answer is no. God isn't fed by us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has no lack. But the language of food is used here to connote the shared meal, a shared meal between the worshipers, the priests, and the Lord himself. Actually, it's shared by more than just the one who brings the animal. Because we, we learn in Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, we read this. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake. Did you catch that? The household is enjoying in this shared meal as well. That would include spouses and children and parents and maybe even grandparents and servants. All part of the household were sharing together in this communal meal. And that also becomes clear, the shared meal of many people partaking. When we consider in chapter 7 the regulations around the eating of this sacrificial animal, if it is offered as a Thanksgiving offering, it needs to be eaten on the day that it's offered and fully consumed. What is not consumed on that day is to be burned. If it's an offering in response to a vow, then it is to be eaten on that day or the next day, but then on the third day it needs to be burned. Now, 
if you'll remember when we were looking at the prodigal son, we made the observation that when the fattened calf was killed by the father, it would have taken about 100 people to eat that animal in a feast. And so the, 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 the conclusion that we drew, or the inference we drew from that, is that the whole village was invited to the feast to share in the meal. Well, eating, they didn't eat meat as regularly as we did, as, as regularly as we can or do in our culture. This was a special occasion. And many would have been invited to share in the eating of this animal together with the worshiper and his family, possibly his friends, and also, of course, the priests. Jeffrey Harper, an Old Testament scholar, writes this. He says, quote, the best lens through which to view the fellowship offering is that of celebration of a feast rather than grocery shopping. These were special occasions to eat luxury food with friends and family and even outcasts and foreigners. So it's a shared meal. And there are some instructions about this meal that we need to look at for just a moment. God gets the fat and the blood. The blood, like other sacrifices, is thrown against the sides of the altar. And in verse 3, with the animal from the herd, the, quote, fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver were to be offered up on the altar to the divine king. Some of you are thinking, great, I'm glad God wants those portions. I wouldn't want them. But let me say that in that day and age, this was the delicacy. This was the finest portion, the fat, the kidneys, the liver, to be given over as an act of honoring the, the one of greatest honor, the divine king. When Mandy and I were quite a bit younger, we did some missionary work in uh, Lesotho, the kingdom of Lesotho, which is contained in South Africa. And actually, a few months, a months ago, I mentioned the fact that we didn't eat sheep, and I said there's a story behind that. Well, I'm going to give you the brief story as to why that is now. Uh, we were staying uh, with a Basutu family, and the man who was the head of that home was a, a really respected man, and he would take us to different places in Mokotolong, where we were, uh, in the upper regions, uh, just across the Drakensberg Mountains, to preach the gospel. And he took us to a, a very small village one day, with about three huts in the village. And before we had an opportunity to preach, as we were walking in, he says, you know, if you want them to hear your word, then you should, you should eat what they put in front of you. And so we went into this house, this very modest and humble home, and the villagers had gathered there, and they seated us at a raised table, and then they served us the delicacy of their life and of their, their culture, and it was boiled sheep organs. And so we had brain and lung and intestine and heart sitting on these plates, and they don't actually drink during their meals in that culture, so there was nothing to drink it with. And, and we, as they watched, as guests of honor, we got the delicacy and did our best to eat them. I would still say, Mandy would say that one of my greatest acts of chivalry in our marriage to this day is that I let her slip a lung onto my plate during the meal. <laughs> that is love, mind you, that is love. Um, what those generous villagers in Lesotho were doing in the late 90s, the people of God were commanded to do for the Lord as they showed up at the shared meal to give him the best portion of the meal, that it might be transferred into smoke or transformed into smoke and then transferred up to the Lord's presence as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, as we read in verse 5. This shared meal, that is, in one sense, gave the Israelites a tangible way to honor their divine king by offering him the best of what they had. Further, they were not only not to eat the fat, but they were not to eat the blood. And I want to take just a moment on this. 
Um, we read about this actually a couple of weeks ago in Leviticus 17, 10 through 12, where the prohibition against eating blood is much more clear. And I should say, don't get images of cups of blood being drunk or anything. This is most likely blood that remains in the meat, that isn't properly drained from the meat. But the Israelites were commanded not to do that. Why? As the Lord teaches them in chapter 17, because the Lord, the, 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 the life of the animal was in the blood. And the Lord had given to them this blood, the life of the animal, as an atonement for them. The Lord who is sovereign over all of life. To eat the blood or the meat with blood in it was to claim to own something, the life of the animal, that was owned only by the Lord himself. In his unpublished, yet unpublished commentary that uh, Jay Sklar, an Old Testament scholar, who's worked for most of his career on Leviticus, and uh, he shared it with me in preparation for this series. But he says, he gives this great little insight um, uh, on what an Israelite parent might say to their child if they came to them and said, Mom or Dad, why don't we eat the fat or the blood? He says, quote, The fat is the very best part and therefore belongs to the one most worthy of honor, the Lord. We honor him at the table by burning this part up to him, and we honor him at home by not eating it. That is not even in a sacrificial worship context. They still wouldn't eat the fat. It would be like us taking the, the beef tenderloin that we've set out on the table and then not eating it in honor of the Lord. That's what it would have been like for them, not to eat it. And then the parent goes on, the blood represents the animal's life, which belongs to the Lord. He allows us to use it to make atonement for our own lives, giving it back to him on the altar, but not to eat it as though it belonged to us. We honor his lordship over all of life when we refuse to eat meat with the lifeblood in it. So this meal gave them a way of honoring the Lord by these prohibitions. So that's the fact of this being a shared meal. Second point, and more briefly, the purpose of this shared meal. Well, we've seen one purpose, which is to honor the Lord by dedicating to him the delicacy and the finest portions. But the deeper and greater purpose of this meal is perhaps to renew their covenant relationship with the Lord of glory. Meals were often eaten in the ancient world when covenants were forged or renewed. Isaac prepared a feast to share with Abimelech in Genesis chapter 26 after they had entered into a covenant together. The meal, the shared meal, was a ratification of their covenant. In fact, we actually still do this today because the, probably the most well-known covenant-making ceremony today is a wedding. And nearly at all weddings, there's often a meal that is shared together as a sign of that joy in the covenant that has been made. So much so this happens with God when he makes his covenant with his people. In Exodus 24 at Sinai, God enters into a covenant and they sacrificed ascension offerings and fellowship offerings, Exodus 24, 5. And then Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and 70 elders went up on the mountain and shared a meal in the very presence of the living God. Exodus 24, 11 says, they beheld God and ate and drank. God invited them into his presence to share a meal together, and it was a covenant-ratifying meal through which each covenant partner was reminded of and committing to, once again, their covenant obligations. We actually see the same thing in Deuteronomy 27. The people of God are on the brink of the Promised Land. They're about to cross the Jordan and enter in, a story that's then told in Joshua. And we read in Deuteronomy 27 that they offered fellowship offerings, and they ate fellowship offering meat 
as a way of renewing their covenant with the Lord. All of this suggests that the deeper purpose of this fellowship offering in Leviticus 3 is to celebrate and reconfirm the covenant relationship that exists by God's grace and God's grace alone between God and his people. This meal served as a reminder of the Lord's great commitment to his people, so great that he would enter in to redeem them out of slavery in Egypt, that they could be brought to the promised land. It was also a reminder of the people's obligations to be, to be faithful in the covenant to their Redeemer and their King, to God himself, as they enjoyed his sweet presence and fellowship with him through this shared meal together. This covenant renewing and covenant reminding meal was at the center of their worship. It was a glorious occasion of feasting and celebrating in the presence of God and with one another. And of course, this feature of the old covenant relationship between God and his people remains a central feature of the covenant relationship between God and his people in the new covenant that was inaugurated by the great high priest, Jesus, our Lord. Think about it for a moment about Jesus. I mentioned at the beginning that the bookends of Scripture were feasting in the presence of God. Well, what was Jesus known for in his ministry? I'll give you an insight from Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When God came in the flesh to accomplish our great redemption, he was known for eating and drinking, so much so that he could be charged as a drunkard or a glutton. God is a God who hosts us at his table and feasts with those who, are, who, are, who would be willing to come into his presence. It is no accident that Jesus' first miracle in the gospel according to John is the transformation of water into wine at the great wedding feast. It's as if Jesus is saying to all who would have eyes to see, this was the first of his signs, that I am the Lord of the feast and I've come to restore you to satisfaction and abundance and overflowing life that is represented in the extravagance of a wedding feast that I have now made more extravagant by turning water into wine when the wine had run out. I've come to restore you to life in full. And is it any wonder that one of the two ritual actions that Jesus commands of his followers, we call them sacraments, is to, en to, to engage as we wait for his return, is a shared meal together, set out here before us. A feast upon him, the bread of life. This communion meal celebrated by Christians throughout history, as we will do today, is an invitation from God to his banquet table to sup with him the divine king, through the spirit of God. It's a meal at which God is the divine host, offering to us his divine hospitality and nourishment that we might renew our covenant relationship with him in, in the sense of our commitments to him and be reminded of his commitments to us. And one of my hopes is, having looked at the fellowship offering of chapter 3 of Leviticus, is that we will all walk away today with a renewed sense of the beauty and wonder and joy of this communion meal because the fellowship offering that resulted in a shared meal between the god of glory 
the priests and the Israelites, is directly fulfilled in the communion table of our Lord, where we continue to be invited by the divine King to share in a covenant-renewing meal with Him. And that meal shows us a few wonderful things. This meal that we partake in today reminds us, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It reminds us of the great lengths to which God would go to rescue and redeem his people, that we might be in fellowship with him. I mean, imagine, remember the Israelites at Mount Sinai, because they're still at Mount Sinai when the book of Leviticus is given. Remember their fear and terror when God made himself known at the summit of the mountain. And they said, Lord, we don't want to hear from him. We want to hear directly from you, Moses, because God is too great for us. And yet, what does the revelation of worship that the divine king reveals in Leviticus 1 through 7 lead to? It leads to them actually being in fellowship with that great being and sharing a meal in his presence, not being consumed by the holy Lord of glory, but being embraced by his kindness and mercy and grace in his presence, sharing in a meal with him. That is astonishing this God of great power and redemptive glory and work, that he, they could sit at his table and share in a meal in his presence? Well, as we come to the Lord's table that Jesus inaugurated the night before he was crucified, we come as those who remember his great power and authority to overcome our great enemy in sin, evil, and death itself. Not because of anything that we could do. We, like the Israelites, were trapped in slavery, only even greater. We could never get out. It was too great of a match for us. And God enters in. The Holy Lord of glory takes on human flesh to set you and me free from bondage to sin and death that we might have fellowship with him. Glory be to God. When we come to this table, like when they came to the fellowship offering and meal, we come remembering the great act of redemption and power of our God that brings us into his, his holy presence. Secondly, we come to this meal as those who are honoring the Lord with the best portion. You might say, well, what is the best portion of the communion meal? And I would say to you this, you are and I am. We offer to God our bodies, as we saw last week, as a living sacrifice, wholly given over to him. When you come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ in the communion meal, Every time, whatever church, however it's done, you come as a covenant member of the covenant family and you come reminded of your complete consecration and offering of yourself to him in response to his giving himself for you. It is no longer the kidneys and the liver and the fat around the entrails that are the best portion to be transformed into smoke and transferred into his presence. It is now you and me, living sacrifices, offered up to our covenant king of grace. And then thirdly, so we remember his amazing redemption. We offer the best portion that is ourselves. And thirdly, we are reminded as we share in this meal together of our covenant duties and obligations under Jesus's lordship to one another as they would have been in the fellowship offering of Leviticus 3 when they shared in that meal, they are reminded. Leviticus is the book from which Jesus draws the command, love your neighbor as yourself. 
from which he calls us to do justice in the world. The people of God were reminded in this covenant renewing meal of their obligations, not just to the Lord of glory, but to one another as fellow members of the covenant people of God, that they were there to love one another, to love their neighbors as themselves. And we are reminded of that as well. The amazing thing, of course, is that while in Leviticus 3, the worshipers ate the meat of the sacrificial animal, so now, in this fulfillment of the fellowship offering, in the Lord's Supper, we eat of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize in saying that, I've opened the door of tremendous, you know, ink that has been spilled on exactly what is taking place in this meal, and Christians have disagreed in many ways about that. But I want you to know this, that Jesus, our King, said these words in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The bread that we share reflects the body of our Lord. The wine, the cup that we partake of, reflects the blood of our Lord. And one thing that we can affirm in this is, we know this from the way that we call, what do we call this meal more than anything? We call this meal communion. We can affirm that this is a meal in which we commune with our triune God in a special and deep way, and that he intended it to be that way for us. This meal signifies that the sacrificial offering of the fellowship offering was none other than the Lord Jesus himself, who is our sustenance, our nourishment, our strength, our life. And as you eat of this bread, and drink of this cup. Be reminded of the great gift of God in his son Jesus that sustains, nourishes, and empowers you to go out into the world in the power of his spirit and proclaim his name as king. God longs to dwell with his people. More than that, he longs to fellowship, to commune with his people. And long ago, he showed his people that from the glorious presence in the tabernacle. And he continues to show us that day in and day out, week in and week out, whenever we partake of this meal together, that God longs to fellowship with us. This is historically known as the Eucharist from the Greek verb eucharisteo, which means simply to give thanks. Are we in awe? of a God who longs to fellowship with us, to renew his covenant with us, to give us himself, that we can feast in his presence and at his table. This is our great privilege. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your abundant gifts, above all for the gift of your son Jesus, who was and is the true purification, reparation, ascension, grain or tribute and fellowship offering. We thank you for the amazing provision that you've given to us in him. And Lord, as we come to this table in a few minutes, we pray that we would be able to come as those, again, who are celebrating your redemptive work and proclaiming it until you come back, who are offering to you our bodies as a living sacrifice, Lord, and who are being reminded of our covenant obligations, not only to you, but to one another as the body of Christ. We worship and praise you, O God that you have come among us 
to fellowship with us. And we can't wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.